electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the markets and your money, where both are likely to head in the coming weeks. As Carl said, we'll ask Double Line Capital's Jeffrey Gundlach in just a bit. Later on in the show, he'll join me for a CNBC exclusive interview. The Investment Committee, they're also here. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Jim Laventhal, Steve Weiss, and Shannon Sakosha, the Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private Wealth. Let's go to the wall. Let's see where stocks are trading. We are pulling back today. Dow's hanging out above 31,000, still a loss of about 72 and a third points there. The S&P is down a third of 1%. NASDAQ is down two-thirds of a percent. And there's the Russell. And there's a lot of focus on small caps, too. We're focused, of course, on the events out of Washington, where things go from here, with the Dow coming off its best week since late November. There is a lot of focus on rising rates today. The 10-year Jim Labenthal is above 1%, 1.13. Is that where the core of your focus is today? I think it is, and I'll just label it for today. I'm not uh, waking up in the middle of the night worrying about it, at least not yet, Scott. Um, But you've heard me say many times over the past few months that current market multiples are justified by the low interest rate environment. Well, guess what? We're not at 0.7% on the 10-year anymore. We're up at 1.13 last I looked. I think, but I don't know, I think 1.35% is where the market might say, hey, wait a second, maybe we've got to rethink this. This could be an, uh, a, a case of, you know, give with one hand, take away on the others. The, uh, the 10-year rising certainly helps the financial stocks. We've been seeing that. But you don't want to see the Microsofts and the Apples and the Googles of the world, which I've been saying are absolutely fine at 29 times forward earnings. You don't want to see those come down to 25 times forward earnings. If we stay right where we are on the 10-year, I'm fine. So the question then is, at what point does the Fed start to put its thumb on the finger and, and buy bonds in mass to keep the interest rates where they are or lower? Okay. That's the burning question on my mind. Yeah, good points all, uh, for sure. And, and Shannon, this idea of rates going up, multiples getting compressed on some of those leadership stocks on the minds of a lot of people today. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, higher, way, higher rates, he says, the wild card could begin a period, a period of falling equity valuations, making earnings revisions even more important than usual for stock performance. So how closely are you watching rising interest rates and the impact it could have on the market? I think the perception of, you know, and to Jim's point, I don't disagree. I think we get up into closer to one and a half percent. I think the markets start to get a little nervous. But, you know, historically, you just think about being under 2% on the 10-year. Um, that handle has certainly never been um, constricting to companies to borrow. We saw massive issuance last year. Corporate bond issuance set a record last year. Um, and we expect there to be continued issuance this year. So it's really about financial conditions, the relative opportunity in bonds. And I think that, you know, from a constraint perspective on companies' earnings, you know, the debt coverage, 
I don't worry too much about that. I do think that there's a perception, however, that this points to higher inflation and higher growth. And those are two reasons why if the yield curve steepens, that's a positive thing. We're not seeing that. I do think that we're in a period where we certainly could anticipate some central bank intervention. If we start to see rates rise and the equity markets react negatively, uh, Powell has made it very clear that he intends to use his balance sheet and use quantitative easing as necessary. And so um, I think that this affects our outlook for financials. Uh, I think if you think about the, the rising, steepening uh, yield curve where, you know, that certainly points to some good earnings or good expectations for financials over the next couple of quarters. So this is important not only from an overall market perspective, but also as it relates to some of the positioning that many institutional investors have put on over the last couple of months. Wow. So, I mean, I've got a couple good things things to work with here, Weiss. I've got two people that, that I've gone to already who are expecting the Fed, the cavalry, to come to the rescue no matter what, continuously, right? If rates start going up too fast, I've got Shannon and Jim talking about the Fed coming into the game uh, again. So that's what we're now reliant on. And I also find it quite telling today, frankly, that nobody on the desk today Nobody on this panel has made any key moves in any stock names over the past number of days, at least handful to mention on this program today. Steve, what does that say about what you're thinking about in the market? Well, as to equity exposure and no key moves, I'm comfortable with my exposure. I'm pretty much fully invested, which is very, very unusual for me. I carry at least 20 percent cash and am rarely caught without 10% cash. This is one of those times where I'm caught without 10% cash. So I'm very comfortable, so I can't really make moves. I trade here and there if there's a great opportunity in a name that I own, I'm familiar with, oversold, overbought. But in terms of rates, look, there's so much talk about rates going on. By the time we get to 2%, it's going to be so ingrained in the market, the market's not really going to care because the growth story as we get through what's a very troubled time for the economy now still and can be a little misleading because the disconnect between the economy and the market is so glaring that I think that we're pretty much going to be immune to the rate increase two percent as long as it doesn't happen tomorrow or the next day. But we can't so it's I mean, be the rate of change. Li listening to Shannon and Jim, it sounds like the market's not even going to be able to handle one point three to one point five percent that that that's going to cause the Fed to, to come back out of the basement and start doing stuff uh, again. So we can't stand on our own two feet? That doesn't tell me that the market's in such a strong place. So, so I would come back to them and I'd say, Jim, are you going to sell Boeing if rates get to 1.3 or 1.5%? I'd go to Shannon and say, what are you going to sell when we get to 1.3 or 1.5%? How's that, go how is that going to impact your portfolio? This May time is going to be that? different words we all hate to say. All words we hate to say and hate to hear, but it is because we have very supportive Fed. I don't know if they ride to the rescue, but the fiscal stimulus we're going to see from the Biden administration is going to blow your socks off. So I think we're OK. And not only from the Fed here, but globally, it's still easy money and 2 percent still historically very, very low. Call me when we get to 3 percent or 4 percent. Then I may get a little okay. concerned. All right, Jim, rebut that and then I'm going to get to Joe. 
Yeah, just very quickly. I'm not going to sell anything, but I am telling you, if you get in that 1.35 to 1.5% range, I would expect a hiccup in the market. You know, we've been waiting for a correction. I think that could catalyze it. And again, I have to be intellectually honest. If I'm sitting here for a long time saying 30 times forward earnings on Apple is perfectly fine in this interest rate environment, and the 10-year doubles from 0.7 to 1.4%, Intellectual honesty demands that I lower my multiple. So if that goes to 25, hey, guess what? That's a 20% decline. I'm telling you, 1.35 to 1.5%, you got to consider the market is going to hiccup. Right. And I won't sell anything, but it's not going to be pleasant. Well, I can't wait for Gunlock at the bottom of the hour to run that by him to see what he thinks about both of you suggesting that that's the yeah. sort of range we're talking about in which the market can have a problem. Uh, I'm going to suggest that he's probably going to say something like, well, that doesn't mean that the, that means that the market maybe shouldn't be where it is in the first place. But we'll leave that to where Gunlock uh, joins us at the, at the bottom of the hour. So, Joe, this issue of, of, of rates, what, what are you most worried about? What are you most thinking about? Maybe you're not worried at all. Well, first, first, you've got me. I'm batting cleanup. I feel like the bases are loaded after uh, the three panelists presented their view. Uh, I, I still think that rates rising, Scott, are a favorable condition for equities. Look no further than once again today, we had a down market on the open. The market rallied. Let's go back to uh, the prior administration that had the majority incoming, and that was President Trump in December of 2016. What did yields do then? Yields, the 10-year, went from 1.80 to 2.60 by March. There was this consensus feeling that growth was going to come back once again. So right now... Rather than looking at what a 10-year is pricing at, and I would argue the dividend yield of the S&P, which is around 155, is actually more important, let's look at what bond funds are doing. Because that's going to tell you where the new buyers for equities are going to come from. And bond funds so far, contrary to what they did last year, they're down. If you're looking at investment grade, those bond funds are down 1.5% to 2%. If you're looking at the aggregate bond funds, which old about 40% in Treasury. They're down 1%. So that new money is going to come out of those bond funds into equities. I think that's going to be important. Lastly, I think to Stephen's point, I think the street is totally underestimating the potential of what President-elect Biden is going to suggest on Thursday. And I think Thursday is very important for that reason. What type of fiscal support are we going to be talking about here? The street thinks it's going to be about $900 billion. I think it's going to be closer to the $3.4 trillion that was introduced in the HEROES Act back in May. So if that is going to be the condition, then the steepening of the yield curve is well, going to you, continue. Well, you're assuming that that the goes through. Going I mean, that, to move higher. that kind of number may not have a snowball's chance in you know where to get, to get past Congress. Let, let's, not for, let, let's not overstate. Let's not overstate what the uh, Democrats controlling Congress and the Senate means to this whole process you're still going to have some very important people in the, the centrist leaders on both parties who are dictating policy. You start throwing around numbers like $3.4 trillion and higher than that, there's no indication that something like that, that large, is going to get through. I, will, I am of the view that the support that will be provided will be closer to the trillions than it will to $900 billion, especially when you got an unemployment report on Friday, which was the worst report we've had since April, and saw a significant loss of restaurant jobs, 
which are incredibly important. So I disagree with you. Well, I don't. I think look, that stimulus figure is going to be higher, and I think the market is telling you that if you look at where Treasuries are priced. I mean, the delta on your spread is too wide, though. I mean, you're you're going from 900 to three point T. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be meeting somewhere in the middle, right? Which could have a far different reaction in the bond market and on expectations for inflation, Joe, don't you think? I would agree with that, but I still think the outcome is a good one for equities. And I still think the consensus estimates, which are saying right now $900 billion for fiscal support, I just think they're too low. You want to say $3.4 trillion is too high? Okay, it's too high. But I think you could get to $2 trillion, and that's clearly going to be stimulative. And okay. that's certainly going to lead to further steepening in the yield curve. Okay, that means that the focus on the banks right now, as Jim pointed out at the very top of the show, is legit. Remember what Jim Cramer said a week or so ago, and maybe it was 10 days uh, by now, the last couple of weeks have seemed like an eternity. So bank stocks have run up, but he cautioned that what may happen, Jim, is that they deliver their earnings and then they come back down because the reality starts to set in about what the businesses are actually doing, despite the fact that the yield curve is steepening and this environment is better for the banks. And oh yeah, those stocks have already gone up a lot. I'll take the other side of that trade. I like, listen, I I like that Jim's thinking about this, but what is on my mind with the financials is what they reported in the third quarter. They gave very clear signals at the money center banks that they were trying to over-reserve for loan losses. And at that point in time, remember, we didn't have the first vaccine news from Pfizer. Now that news is out there. I mean, I'm expecting Jamie Dimon, who is obviously always outspoken and very direct, to say, hey, you know what? We might have over-reserved. Maybe in the near future, we're going to give some of that reserves back. I think the business, to Jim's point, might be better than expected. And let me say one last thing. If that sounds like it's a little premature, because it does feel maybe a touch premature, let's bear in mind that the Fed surprised all of us by, in my opinion, prematurely allowing share buybacks. So there's been good news coming early for the banks. I think it's going to continue. Yeah. Shan, do, do you think... It's going to continue, as Jim says? I do. I I think the financials, I mean, if we sat here, you know, a year and a half ago, we were all talking about how this value, growth to value rotation had to be led by financials. Um, And then the interest rate environment changed dramatically overnight in March. And so, you know, if we look out over the next, you know, two years or so, if you think about the, the work that, you know, especially big banks have done to improve, you know, their profitability and improve their revenue sources and move away from relying on net interest income. You know, you have strong businesses now just put in, you know, that tailwind of even modestly higher rates. And there's huge opportunity here, even if there is some central bank intervention on the long end of the curve, which I believe there could be, I don't think that it will be enough to make financials less palatable to investors who really want to buy better companies. I think it's a much harder trade to take a binary uh, bet on energy companies right now than going into banks. And so I think this will really be the kind of the tip of the spear as it relates to this value rotation. Okay. Oh, I like what you just did because you just teed it up again for me, Steve Weiss. So you're going to get a better bang for your buck right now moving forward. It's a safer bet buying the banks right here rather than playing this energy move which energy was the leadership group oils above fifty two dollars a barrel last i checked 
Is that the right way to think about that trade? You're going to get you're better off in the banks than you are with the barrels. Well, I, I think one of the reasons why you've seen the banks move up and the steepening yield curves that you've seen oil prices move up. So you've brought the talk of inflation, which then is fed into the bond market. If that's the game, then I'm not playing because I think oil prices are closer to a high than they are to a low. I think they retreat. That's unsustainable. It's always a mugs game trying to trade oil and invest in it. So I'm not, I'm not in that trade. I'm not playing the energy stocks. I do think you're safer in the bank stocks. Good luck to Jim if he can call quarters if he wants to trade around quarters. I think the uptrend's still there. However, in a relative performance sense, then I don't think you get your best performance out of the banks. I continue to think growth and tech is where you get the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, because the fundamentals are in there. They're not dependent on extraneous matters such as the Fed, but they're dependent upon innovation and growth and cutting back costs for companies. So that's where I'm okay. playing it. And why mess around? Why say, figure out, am I going to outperform energy versus the banks? Great question, but I'm just not there. No, but you, if you think that, that energy is going to be a huge winner this year, then you, you would want to be in energy. So, you know, Joe, as it relates to value, Goldman says the time for value, why there is more to go. J.P. Morgan says the val value rotation has legs. On the oil conversation, Morgan Stanley on it says, quote, for the first time since late 2018, our sector view is attractive again. All right, so they've turned for the first time since 18. Exxon gets raised over at Morgan Stanley today to overweight. Price target to 57 from 49, and that is now their top pick over Chevron. There's a lot to unpack there, but you're my guy, so go ahead. Well, as it relates to energy, um, I think prices are going to move higher. However, I agree with Shannon and Steve. I don't know that I want to stay with energy and investments, and I'll tell you why. The incentive for prices to move higher is that that will be the condition that will get people to understand to move away from energy. If you want to get people away from utilizing um, oil, the way to do it is by higher prices. I still believe, though, that there is the ESG element that's going to act as a headwind on these oil companies. I still foresee that there is a significant amount of debt that needs to be uh, refinanced in Q3 of this year, and that's going to provide an opportunity. So, yes, I think the time has come where you can be introducing value in the form of quality companies into your portfolio. I've been doing that with my ownership of Tractor Supply and Best Buy and Bungie and some of the other names I've been talking about over the last six weeks, but I don't know necessarily if I want to do it in the form of energy. Last point on that is what about a Merck? What about healthcare? We're forgetting about the potential opportunity that healthcare provides in your portfolio with some of the names that are viewed as value that I think are going to begin to work significantly, not just this year, but in coming years. And to your point, Steve Weiss, Jeffries downgrades tech to underweight from market weight. They still like some of the areas like semis and communication equipment. They'd be selective in software. But... You know, I've got people on both sides of the boat now saying, OK, we're underweight tech. Now's the time to go to value. But you made a, a pretty sharp case here on why you're not moving away from tech. I'm not, but I'm not going to disagree with Jeffries. Uh, I'm in semis and and communications, and that's where I'm finding it. So software is a little different animal. I own Microsoft. That's just a mainstay of the portfolio. They'll stay there. It's actually underperformed. 
But I just don't see the value trade. I mean, we're just we're in a new generation, not in terms of millennials versus, you know, Gen X or anything like that. We're in a new generation of what drives the what drives industrial economy. And that is technology, pure and simple. Look, the auto companies had to cut back in production because they can't get enough chips. So chips, we've talked about this many times before, and at this point, it's sort of rote, but everything is powered by technology, whether it's the auto industry, whether it's, of course, telecom, whether it picks something, your Peloton. So that's why the growth is there. Hmm. The expansion of the total addressable market is undeniable, Under, and you can't understood. even calculate it. Und understood. Of course, we could be talking about two different time frames, right? Longer term, um, obviously, the points you just made seem cogent, and they would, they would likely be the right ones. However, on a, on a more near-term basis, because you're going to be coming out of a pandemic, and you've got this vaccine that... In the near term, it's quite conceivable that over the next several months, that value could outpace growth. We, we, we just don't know because we're still trying to get our arms around the whole rollout of the vaccine, which is another story in and of itself. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Coming back, we'll talk about the big ETFs to watch today. Plus that halftime exclusive we have, Double Lines, Jeffrey Gunlock joining us, his take on the markets, rates, everything else. We're back in two minutes. We're back. Bob Pisani has our ETF Edge today. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scotty. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I am, of course, Bob Pisani. The election of Joe Biden has dramatically accelerated inflows into blue wave themes like climate change, infrastructure, and cannabis. Joining us now, Jay Jacobs from Global X Funds. His ETFs at the forefront of the so-called thematic investing. Jay, the hot topic of the moment, infrastructure. Your infrastructure ETF, P-A-V-E, PAVE, up 50% since the election. Your thoughts on the chances of a big infrastructure bill this year? Well, the chances have gone up substantially over just the last week when you saw that the Senate is now going to be controlled by Democrats. Uh, infrastructure has been at the top of Joe Biden's plan since the beginning. He's had a $2 trillion plan that's going to invest in roads, highways, airports, ports, uh, as well as you know digital infrastructure and, and clean tech beyond that. So this has been a key pillar of Joe Biden's uh, plan for economic revival. Now he has the tools to do that with Democrats owning the executive branch and the legislative branch. On top of that, we've seen uh, about $500 million in inflows into our pay ETF as investors have started to orient their portfolios towards this theme as they start to see the chances of it uh, accelerating, really taking off. Well, they're certainly betting that something's going to happen. Whether it does is another thing. The other big topic, of course, is climate change and clean energy. Now, your lithium and battery ETF, that's L-I-T, is the symbol there. That's also been on fire as well. It's up 50% in the last six months or so since the, uh, since the elections overall. Can you tell us what you think would be happening? What kind of bills are they going to introduce that would possibly justify a 50% run-up uh, in these clean energy stocks in the last few months? Well, it's, it's important to remember this is a global theme. So it's not just being driven by the United States or even at the federal level. So, of course, you know, Joe Biden has made 
uh, a lot of um, uh, claims about going to rejoin the Paris Agreement, uh, reaching carbon neutrality by uh, 2050, which is going to you know really require a lot of electrification of transportation. But you look at you know states like California, which have said by 2035 they want to be uh, carbon neutral. Uh, you look at countries like the UK and France that are also looking at 2050. Uh, you have China, the world's largest car market, is trying to reach carbon neutrality as well. So this is a global theme being powered by a lot of different regulatory bodies who are all very quickly shifting away from internal combustion engines to lithium and battery technology uh, and electric vehicles. All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Thank you very much, Jay. And don't miss ETF Edge starting at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We look at ESG in 2021, international versus domestic investing, and active management versus passive investing. That's ETF Edge. CNBC.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you. We'll be there. Thank you so much, Bob Pisani. Stay with us. A halftime exclusive interview. Jeffrey Gunlock, Double Line CEO, is next. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. House Republicans have blocked immediate consideration of a resolution calling on Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office. However, a vote could still come as early as tomorrow. There also may be a vote on Wednesday on an article of impeachment accusing Trump of inciting an insurrection. But the exact timing on that is uncertain. As Indonesian Navy divers work to retrieve the black boxes that recorded flight data for that plane that crashed into the ocean Saturday with 62 people on board, an investigator says it appears the jet broke apart when it hit the water, not in midair. That is because the debris are being found in relatively small areas. And here's an unusual scene for Texas, certainly. Heavy snow in parts of the state made travel hazardous and prompted some power outages. And it's not unusual for northern Japan to get some snow, but they're getting a lot more of it than usual. In some places, more than twice the average amount. You are up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Sue Herrera. Well, with stocks and rates in focus today, there is no better time to welcome in our headliner today, Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock. He joins us live now. Jeffrey, it's good to see you. It's been a while. Happy New Year. Hey, Scott. It's nice to be with you. I can't see you, but at least I don't have an earpiece this time. It's the first time I've done one of these things without an earpiece from remote. It's actually kind of nice. Well, let's see how it goes. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, and as we look to sort of, you know, the last time we visited was nine months ago. It's hard to believe it was it was back then in in April, on April 27th. You said you thought we were going to retest the lows then and we take them out. We, of course, did not. And we're 71 percent higher on the S&P 500. So where are we now as you look at this market? Well, we're at extraordinarily high valuations is where we are. That's being supported by massive amounts of stimulus, obviously. And one of the things that's fascinating is you go back for decades of stock market data, there are many valuation metrics that are in the top one percentile of overvaluation. So the thing that's keeping it going, though, of course, is the Fed. The, the Fed, with rates at zero and promises to stay at zero, um, allows for valuations to be you know, record-breakingly high. And, and that's where we are. Also, what's very important, a lot of people understand, is that many things 
that have been persistent trends relative to equity performance have started to reverse one after another after another. For example, emerging markets are outperforming the United States. Uh, value is outperforming growth. Weak balance sheets are outperforming strong balance sheets. Um, it goes on and on. And some of these things are getting fairly convincing. Just look at the Russell 2000 in the month of November. It had its entire uh, year's return, basically, at least through the end of November, in that single month, up something like 16 17%. So things are definitely changing. Um, the leadership of the United States being the top performing uh, market uh, for 10 years, basically, has seemed to reverse. And the super six, as I've uh, been calling them, the FANGs plus Microsoft, are no longer outperforming. So it's interesting that the generals that led the charge to one of the greatest um, market outperformances from the U.S. versus the rest of the world and just an outright nominal <clears throat> returns um, uh, space have really left the battlefield. So a lot of things are changing, and I, I suspect that um, this is not a short-term phenomenon. Of course, the other thing that's really changed is interest rates have stopped falling. And back when we were talking, back in March or April, um, on intraday low, the 30-year Treasury bond got to 71 basis points, and it's over 100 basis points higher than that right now. So the yield curve is steepening, the dollar is falling, the U.S. is underperforming, and these are important things for asset allocators to consider. I mean, of, of course, there are those who would make an argument that, that big tech's underperformance is not necessarily a bad thing because you've had a widening out of breadth within the market. So whereas there was a big criticism about the top-heavy move in, in the market, that's, that's widened out. Um, rates are still low as well, right? Super low. Um, rates are really low. Yes. So are, 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 do you see markets being vulnerable right here? Because the Fed's not getting out of the way. And the Fed being a principal reason of what you just said as to why we're here in the first place. If that dynamic's not going to change anytime soon, is the market vulnerable or is it justified in being where it is? I think all markets are vulnerable to a fact that I think is undeniable that's going to happen. Uh, in the next four or five months, and that is whether it's sustainable or not, the CPI headline number is going to move up in a very meaningful way uh, by mid-year. We have a model at DoubleLine that's worked very, very well. It's not a very complicated model, but it's amazing how well it works. And we suspect that inflation on the, on the headline CPI is going to come up to close to 3%. It might even hit a three-handle in the May or June report. And you might remember that uh, Charlie Evans last week said something pretty remarkable for a Fed governor, number two guy at the Fed, relative to getting the inflation rate higher, which we all know is their fervent desire. He said, we're in it to win it, meaning we, we, are, we are in this to get inflation higher. And they don't even have to do anything based upon the base effect of how low the inflation rate was when we went into the lockdown. By the time we get to May or June, the CPI is going to be something like 3%. Maybe, maybe high twos. But when you look at a 10-year Treasury that's barely over 1%, it's hard to believe that that level could sustain without massive intervention by the Fed if you actually had a CPI that was at that number of about 2.9 or 3%. And so I think interest rates will continue to rise until such time as the Fed decides to do their yield curve control that they've talked about repeatedly in plain English and plain sight. Um, where that level is, is the $64,000 question, because I don't think rising interest rates from this level are something that is going to sit well 
with obviously not the bond market, and it's not going to sit well with uh, the things that are at elevated valuations based upon the uh, the anchor of low interest rates uh, produced by by the Fed. So, so this is this is very important. Yeah. So it certainly sounds like you're you're worried uh, or at least concerned about the market's reaction to rising in inflation. I want to read you something that Mohammed El Arian said this morning on Squawk Box and get your reaction to it because it's right in, in your wheelhouse. Um, he said, if you're looking for warning sign, I'm quoting here, if you're looking for warning signs, there are some warning signs coming out of the fixed income market. He pointed to the steepening of both the 210 and, and 230s. He said, quote, it's going up for the wrong reasons, not because of growth, but because of a combination of buyers getting more hesitant and people worrying about inflation. If you get another 20 basis points in another five to six trading sessions, then it's flashing yellow and a lot brighter at that point. Do you agree? Well, I don't know about that last part. I don't know what's so magical about 20 more basis points, but look, let, let's just let's just zoom out a little bit. We've been looking for a steeper yield curve at double line for a long time, and it's certainly been happening. I mean, twos, tens has been steepening. It was inverted briefly there uh, in late uh, 2018, early 2019, and now it's it's been steepening out. And I do think that uh, inflation is a a, a real game changer should it occur. And that certainly is why rates are rising. Um, one thing that wasn't in that quote was looking at uh, break-evens by comparing the tips market to the regular treasury market. And the break-evens went way down, understandably, in March and April when last we spoke because there was this economic uh, disaster that was occurring. But the break-evens have fully recovered and are now going up. So the I'm just going to reiterate, Charlie Evans said, we're in this to win it. We're in it to win it. The Fed wants inflation. One, one way to contextualize all this that is actually, I, I think, sort of the goal of the Fed is they want the inflation rate to be higher than the, the interest rate anywhere on the yield curve, even out to 30 years. That's one way in which you cushion the blow of this debt compounding that we're doing at shockingly high rates in response to the lockdowns, you know, the budget deficit, the real budget deficit, not the official one, if you include the off balance sheet stuff, is 20% of GDP. I mean, we we are not out of the recession. I know that a lot of people say because we've got a couple quarters of growth here, that's by some sort of dictionary definition out of the recession, but that's not the gunlock definition. The gunlock definition is you're out of a recession when you take out the old highs of nominal and real GDP. And we certainly haven't done that yet. So um, here we are uh, running massive budget deficits, which is weakening the dollar, which will be a further um, impetus for inflation. And we know that the inflation rate's going up. And one thing that a lot of people really probably don't realize, if you want to win a beer at a bar uh, with a bunch of economists, ask them what's the highest uh, year-over-year core CPI level for the past 25 years. And most people would probably think there must have been a month in there when it was 4% or something like that, but it was never even three. Core CPI has been incredibly subdued for 25 years. And I believe that the big 40,000 foot overview of what's going on here is many long-term trends that we've come to uh, trade based upon and people have baked into their, their, their forecasts and their thesis is that, that a lot of these, these trends that have been in place are changing. Um, and I think that inflation could very well ultimately break out to the upside uh, and that would be a massive game changer for everything. Uh, it would it would probably break apart the uh, lack of correlation between stocks and bonds. Uh, my friend Jim Bianco talks about this. We 
we had a discussion uh, on my roundtable prime, which is up on doubleline.com about this that went on for a long time. So a lot of things are changing, um, uh, I, I think. I remember back, it seems like a long time ago now, I guess it was, uh, Judge, we were talking back in 2017, which was the year of epic low volatility for equities and everything else, but equities in particular. Now, I remember when I was talking to you, I was looked at the crawler, and it showed that the VIX index was at 9.85. And I said to you that my highest conviction idea was that the incredibly uh, unprecedented low volatility of 2017 was about to change and was about to go higher and the VIX would go above 15 quickly. And I was derided by subsequent guests on, uh, on CNBC by uh, claiming that I didn't understand that there'd been a structural change in the world and in the VIX and in the market and that the VIX would never, ever go above 15 again. Well, obviously, that uh, idea that we were in a new era about the market's construction was wrong because the VIX has been going up pretty much every year since then. And I think that the low volatility of inflation for the past 25 years is probably going to give way to something different. I respect the idea that we have so much debt that it's possible that the breakout to the CPI out of its range, its incredibly narrow range of the past 25 years, could be to deflation. That's possible under a certain construct. But I believe the Fed doesn't want that to happen. And they want the inflation rate to be above every interest rate. And another thing that's interesting right now is that average hourly earnings year over year are higher than the rate on the 30-year uh, uh, mortgage commitment rate. So people are actually able to borrow at essentially sort of negative interest rates, even to buy homes. And corporate bonds, for the first time in history, are actually at negative yields. And I don't believe this is a coincidence. I don't believe this is an accident. I believe this is by design. And this is one of the reasons why I think you can have uh, a rationale for not, it's not, it's not insane valuations for the stock market, even though it's, it's at, at nosebleed levels by historical standards. So many other things are at unprecedented situations, as I've just described. Right. So even though you say that, that you know, this Charles Evans line of, of in it to win it, the, the Fed is going to be extraordinarily careful, it, isn't it? Is it not about letting interest rates rise too far too fast and this question of, of how much inflation and the speed and rate of it is, is too much. I don't know if you heard the top of my program today, but Jim Labenthal suggested that a 10-year even getting to 1.3 to 1.5 percent, not that far from here, 35, 40 basis points, was going to be too much for the Fed. And they'd, they'd th- start putting their thumb on the scale again. They would start buying bonds to further push rates down again. Do you agree with that? I don't know what the level is. Again, I don't have any inside information on this, and I don't even know if the Fed themselves has a preconceived notion. But they've been crystal clear that they are willing to do what they call yield curve control, which is pegging interest rates. The big question is, what level would that be? I'm going to just pull out some intuition here. I don't have any super secret information. But I, I think the Fed will let the 10-year go higher than one and a half. Um, I don't know what the number is. It might, might be two. But again, I'm going to go back to this theme that the inflation rate, the headline CPI, is going to go above two and a half in the next few months. And I think as long as the uh, viewpoint of CPI is higher than the rate on the 10-year, that the Fed may let things be. 
I, I think that if the 10-year goes above the headline CPI or the core CPI or both, that might be the trigger that the Fed comes in and does their yield curve control. Right now, that's not, that's not an issue because the 10-year isn't uh, close to the headline CPI and the headline CPI is moving higher. So my guess is that that fellow that uh, you had at the top of your show, my guess is his number is a little too low as far as uh, where the Fed will come in. What what do you anticipate a Powell Fed combined with a Yellen Treasury is going to look like, assuming, of course, that that's the dynamic and Jay Powell remains the Fed chair? I don't uh, buy into the the narrative that's quite common that Janet Yellen is some sort of a puffball and is going to facilitate some sort of wildly easy policy. That wasn't her record as chairwoman of the Fed. Uh, she was the first to raise interest rates. She actually raised the Fed funds rate uh, near the end of her tenure, and she voted for interest rate hikes uh, repeatedly. And I don't think she ever voted against an interest rate hike when she was on the Fed. So I, I, I'm not, it's an it's a interesting idea that somehow that we have you know, band back together with you know, Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and John Kerry hanging around and all this other stuff. But I don't really think that Yellen is, is going to be some sort of uh, massive facilitator based upon her record. But don't you think that, you know, given where we are now and the concerns about the economy, I mean, you yourself said we're still in a recession, that they're, they're going to be extraordinarily easy. Right. I mean, it's this we're not yes. even thinking about thinking about thinking about. And you'll probably have to add a few more thinking abouts before we get out of this range of the conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the Fed uh, has been crystal clear again that they're leaving interest rates at zero for years to come. And so that's something that you could take to the bank. I mean, when Bernanke said that back in like 2010 or 2011, he was going to leave the Fed funds rate at zero for three years. The market didn't believe him, but they should have believed him because they stayed there for even a little bit longer. And so they're going to stay low. And this is this is what's creating um, this move up in inflation expectations, which is not trivial by any stretch of the imagination. And not just not just is inflation rising, but we've started to see. And I, I sent you a few charts. I don't know if you have them, but I sent you one that's on the uh, food commodity prices. Agricultural commodity prices have been really depressed for a sustained period of time, just dropping and dropping. But they've started to, to uh, bottom out and are now rocketing higher. Uh, food inflation is the worst kind of inflation that there is because it hurts the poorest people who are already in a bad way based upon the lockdowns and the unemployment and the lack of wage growth, broadly speaking, over decades. And this is, this is a real issue that has to uh, be dealt with. Food inflation would cause um, real societal shakeup. And these are things, I mean, again, zooming out to the 40,000-foot overview, these are things that I've been talking about for years, that we're going through institutional teardown of the construct of society. And, uh, Judge, you mentioned that it's a good thing in a certain sense, that the, the, the super six are no longer outperforming. And I sort of agree with that. But the extent to which they've outperformed is so massive. That's, that's one of the reasons that we have a lot of these, these societal problems, is that the wealth the wealth inequality has gotten, it's gone from absurd to absurd squared uh, since the lockdowns, of course, the years leading up to. We've gotten to the point where uh, in the technology sector, employment is 2% of 
of the economy in technology. And yet the stock market capitalization of technology is 38% of the market. And this has, of course, expanded very dramatically with the outperformance until recently of the Super 6. So th these, are, these are things that we have to deal with. We, we don't like looking at them because they're, they're not pretty. But yet you turn on the TV and you're seeing the consequences of what I've been calling the fourth turning. It's not my phrase. It's Neil Howe's phrase, H-O-W-E. He wrote a book called The Fourth Turning, which is worth reading. It speaks to how societies you know, deal with the disconnect between rapidly moving technology and slow, if not uh, ossified, uh, property relations and the, the, the institutions of society. And this so, is what happened. So let me ask you this. What, what's your highest conviction trade right now? Now, there was, you know, back when we spoke in the, in the spring, you were, you were short the S&P. I know yeah. that you just mentioned the Russell and what small caps have done and the incredible run that they've had. So let me ask you first from a equity standpoint. What is the highest conviction trade that you have on now? How are you positioned, if in any way, to reflect it from an equity standpoint? Um, emerging market equities, particularly emerging market Asia, is, is where I would be in the equity market. I would have 25%. This is what I've been recommending for months now. and It's been working extremely well. 25% of assets in emerging market equities, particularly favoring Asia. 25% in cash, because that's a deflation position. 25%, even though I think you're going to lose money on it, in long-term government bonds, like the 30-year Treasury. That's because there's a deflation risk. And then 25% in either real estate or Bitcoin or gold or whatever you like as, as a real asset play. So you have 50% of your, of your uh, assets in deflation hedges, cash and long-term bonds, and 50% in inflation hedges, which are real assets and emerging market, particularly Asian equities. And this is a this is a cocktail that's been working very, very well. I mean, last year, the, the long-term bonds helped you. Um, they're not helping you lately, and I'm not sure they're going to, but it, there's enough of a risk that you, you need to have a very a fat tail uh, asset allocation position, and that's what I'm recommending, and it's been working. Okay, so from a, from a fixed income standpoint, then, what's your highest conviction play? I think uh, bank loans are, if you have a one-sector a one portfolio, you know, one thing that's really interesting is bank loans had a bad year last year. Um, they, didn't, they actually had a negative return, at least on a price basis. And these are floating rate assets. And it's interesting, they usually start to get some love when long-term interest rates start to rise. And long-term interest rates have started to rise. Also, there's, the short-term interest rate is at zero. And so there's no chance that your interest rate is going to float lower. It can only float higher. Now, the Fed's not really giving you much support on the idea that it's about to float higher, but it can't float lower. And so I think that bank loans have had persistent outflows from a mutual fund and ETF standpoint over the past 18 months or so. And I think it's time for them to catch up. So I like that. The other areas of in fixed income that are interesting are dangerous, unfortunately, because the Fed has rigged the deck stack the deck to the point where the things that are perceived to be okay are priced at really high levels. I mean, corporate bonds yield about the same as the 30-year treasury in investment grade categories. Uh, high yield bonds have, have been priced all the way back to pre-COVID sorts of levels. So you have to go into the areas that are dangerous, which are, you know, this commercial mortgage-backed securities market, parts of the 
uh, asset-backed securities market. These are these are esoteric things, but investors can retail investors can get to them via uh, closed-end funds that invest in these types of things. But it sounds like it's, go ahead. It's, it sounds like you're 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 a believer in Bitcoin to to certainly some extent. I mean, as a lot of brand name investors these days seem to be. Well, uh, I do a webcast every uh, early January. It's called Just Markets. In fact, I'm doing it tomorrow. People can find it at DoubleLine.com. And all I do is talk about markets. I don't talk about any of my funds because we can uh, free ourselves of the the rigid compliance envelope. And last year, I said my two highest convictions ideas were the dollar was going down and Bitcoin was going up. And Bitcoin at the time was about 5,000. When Bitcoin got to about 23,000, I thought it started looking like a mania. And I went negative, uh, not negative, neutral on Bitcoin. And of course, it went up to 40,000. I think it dropped like 10,000 or something like today or recently. So it's volatile as all get out. But I don't like Bitcoin here. I I don't like things that are up on a still like that, just like I didn't like the Super 6 back in in, uh, June or September. Uh, But Bitcoin to me is now in sort of bubble territory in terms of the way it's been acting. But yeah, it, it does have... The, the people that point out that it has a, a, a terrific supply-demand dynamic, if indeed institutions get involved, they're right. They're right about that. And, and so that's what can, can create these massive moves up in Bitcoin. But for the time being, I've actually been neutral on gold since about the, the, the summertime. Mm. And uh, yeah. now, I'm, now I'm neutral on Bitcoin. I think all of these things are kind of, uh, kind of baked in right now. And the trade location is poor. Even the dollar, I've been very negative on the dollar since January of 2017, but I actually turned neutral on the dollar um, a little bit lower than where we are right now, but basically where we are right now, just just because these things seem like they've gotten too deeply into the, the consensus, consensus narrative. A lot of people call me a contrarian. I'm not really a contrarian, but there's times when the setup, the, the, the people seem to be so much on one side of the boat that I just really don't believe the boat can sail uh, that well. And I think that's where Bitcoin is on the bullish side right now. It's interesting because uh, Mark Cuban uh, tweeted earlier today, uh, watching, this is a quote from his tweet, watching the cryptos trade, it's exactly in all caps, like the internet stock bubble, exactly again in all caps. I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, a few others will be analogous to those that were built during the dot-com era, survived the bubble bursting and thrived like Amazon, eBay and Priceline. Many won't. Uh, so it sounds like you guys are, are symbiotic, at least to today, about where Bitcoin is and the level it is and the run that it's had. Yeah, I haven't talked to Mark in a while. It's, it's, with these lockdowns, it's funny. You kind of lose track of some, some of the people you communicate with. But, yeah, I, I think if, if you wanted to make historical comparisons of, of Bitcoin or, or the NASDAQ or uh, relative outperformance of things back to the bubble days, there's plenty of evidence that supports that point of view. Um, the thing that you have to be cautioned, that's a caution uh, warning about doing that is the, the Fed and the stimulus are really relentless uh, right now. And the, the Fed is committed to zero interest rates for years to come. And the stimulus, I, I, I keep hearing the word trillions with an S on it, in terms of stimulus. And it's sort of hard to fight uh, the, the, the massive uh, impetus that is created by, uh, in the short term anyway, trillions with an S of stimulus and zero interest rates and negative mortgage rates relative to inflation and 
negative corporate bond real yields. I mean, these are these are very very uh, powerful impetuses, and for that reason, uh, you can see that the bond market it has the yield curve steepening, and we have the break evens uh, going up um, pretty uh, persistently. And for the time being, I, I think the trend is your friend in that regard. Mm. Steve Weiss, you have something for Jeffrey Gundlach before we go? I do. We've got a dual mandate here from the Fed, so we haven't talked about employment at all. Isn't that going to temper what they do in terms of raising rates anytime soon? Particularly with technology continuing to pressure jobs. Yeah, again, the Fed is not going to raise rates anytime soon. They've said so in plain sight, in, in plain English. And so that's that's not something you have to worry about. Uh, so that's 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 why we have had this uh, relentless rise in things. And, and now you have real estate rising as well. And I, I, I keep hearing commentary about how, you know, like vaccines are some magic uh, silver bullet and everything's going to go back to normal. You know, there's the old nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. And you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And I, I think investors need to think very seriously about the fact that we're not going back to February of 2020. It's never going to happen. And, and small businesses are still closed in a huge way. I mean, about 25% of the small businesses that were up and running 12 months ago are closed right now. And, a lot of, and one of the themes that I think is going to become apparent here in 2021 is that economic distress is going to start climbing the ladder. Um, so what I mean by that is it's first hit, you know, the baristas and, and stuff like that, the very low wage level. And it's going to start climbing up the, the ladder. What, what is the moment? How long does lockdown have to go on before a CEO uh, looks in the mirror and says, maybe I have to restructure permanently the way that I'm doing business here? Because once you're locked down for, it, we're coming on a full year here. And at least here in Southern California, we don't have any visibility on when this is going to end. There, there comes a point when you have to say, I need to make changes into how we're operating as a business. But, and those changes are not hiring more people. I know, but that, that's, a, that's a pretty dark view on what the other side of the pandemic is going to look like. I mean, don't you think you must feel it? I mean, there, there's so much pent up demand. People want to get back to whatever normalcy is going to look like. Now, it may be different from what it was in February of 2020, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be the apocalypse either forever. I think there's a short term pent up demand. I, I think that's right. We've seen evidence of that just in the in the in the just past holiday season. If you look at the TSA data, there was a, a, a noticeable uptick uh, versus a, a, the trend from a year ago. So sure, there was, there, was, there was pent up demand, and I think that happens. But I also think that a lasting effect post-pandemic is people experienced basically, they, they had the fear of God put into them when they started to worry that they had no savings and that they were going to lose their job potentially. And I think we're going to go more into a savings economy ultimately. I mean, a lot of the stimulus money was saved. I mean, we had the weirdest. That's true. I got, a, I got less than a minute left. It's just to just to throw that in there. OK, we had the weirdest snapback ever. Here was a, a very, very deep uh, recession where personal disposable income actually went up. Thanks. Thanks to the stimulus. But that's this is not sustainable stuff. So we're going to have a, a future which is going to be extremely bright, Judge, not dark. 
but we have to readjust, and that readjustment does take some work. So when we get through the fourth turning, it's going to be a vastly better world, I believe. But we have to go through the hard work of preparing and creating it. And I look forward to that happening. Enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to the next. Thank you for being with us, Jeffrey Gunlock. Thanks, Judge. All right. We'll we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, Jeffrey, of course, of Double Line. Shannon, can you give me a name for a final trade real quick? Analog devices. Okay, Joe? AMD. Steve? GBTC, Bitcoin. And the farmer? General Motors. All right, guys, good stuff. Thank you. Thanks to Jeffrey Gunlock as well. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.